Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast, your favorite orthopedic surgery podcast that you tell all your friends, colleagues, and mentors about. We appreciate it, and you are tuned into our OITE slash our board review series. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics. But again, you're now tuned into our OITE slash our board review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine. And we are on the spine train, and we will continue on with some spine. If this is your first time listening, we do have a YouTube channel. You just look up Nailed It Ortho on YouTube, and you'll see a lot of our videos. You can see some of our Citation Classics videos, some surgical technique videos, as well as our weekly episode videos. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Uh, let's say you have a patient, um, who meets surgical indications for a lumbar fracture. What, what are those? Yeah. So these are patients that have, um, cauda equina syndrome, uh, which we spoke about um, a little bit earlier in this talk, but you know, the kind of the issue with the nerve roots and the, you know, thing for patients, when you worry about things like this, you know, you worry about, you know, kind of the saddle anesthesia, things of that sort. Um, so one of the indications to uh, operate is going to be cauda equina syndrome or a patient that has a significant neurological deficit with severe canal compromise. You know, they're getting weaker and weaker and they're just not doing well neurologically once you're um, doing your serial ex examinations on them. Um, other things to note um, that maybe some possible surgical indications are going to be burst fractures where you have a loss of alignment. So this is something like greater than 30 degrees of junctional kyphosis, um, posterior ligamentous injury, or neurodeficits. So these are all kind of some indications, um, surgical indications to treat lumbar fractures. Now, what is, you know, one of the super important things to know about, and I, I think they definitely test this as well, is the um, TLICS score. Uh, what is uh, the TLICS and, and what is the score? So this is a, uh, it's the TLIC score, thoracolumbar injury classification scale or something like that, or a classification score uh, that is used to determine is a patient with thoracolumbar injury going to uh, require surgery versus not. And it's based on a point system which uh, you're looking at three different things. One is the injury morphology. One is the neurologic status. And two or, or three is the uh, uh, posterior ligamentous complex integrity. And so as you go through this, um, I'm not going to go through all of the points because it'll just confuse people listening. So uh, if you're in a car, wait until you get home or to work and <laughs> wait the, yeah pull up the Felix Don't text and drive. um or if you're at home just just hanging out uh, uh pull up the telix score and just kind of follow along so the injury morphology is the is the type of fracture that the patient has and uh we just talked about them so you have compression you have burst you have rotational injuries and you have distraction injuries. Um, then you have neurologic status. And, and as you go up in 
kind of grade or up in severity, you go up in score too. So neurologic status, the patient's intact, then you're less concerned about needing to operate on them. But if they have uh, something like uh, radicular symptoms or nerve root symptoms, if they have an incomplete spinal cord or conus injury, and the conus, as we all know, ends at the superior uh, lumbar spine, um, or if they have complete spinal cord uh, or conus uh, injury, uh, you're given more points for that. And then the most points is going to be cauda equina. And just like you had mentioned, surgical indications is going to be cauda equina syndrome. Um, and then lastly is the posterior ligamentous uh, complex integrity. If it's intact, well, it's intact, then we know that the spine is pretty stable. So that's going to give you zero points. But if it's uh, something that you're concerned about, or it clearly shows widening of the interspinous distance on a sagittal CT scan or MRI, then you're going to give more points. And essentially what this comes down to is uh, if the score total is less than four, then a lot of those patients do well with non-surgical management. But that's what we're talking about, a compression fracture with intact neurologic status and no posterior ligamentous complex integrity, that patient gets a score of one. And so they're going to do well with non-operative management in a TLSO. A score of four is, uh, I don't know, it's kind of BS that they gave you uh, a score that can either say yes, do surgery or no, don't. I would say that a lot of people tend to err more on the being more aggressive side and will operate more on four point patients rather than not. And then a score greater than four. So a score of five or more is uh, surgical management is indicated. And what those patients look like are, let's say a very common test question is a burst fracture uh, at the L1 vertebral body. So right at the conus. So you have a burst fracture, which is two points. You have a conus medullaris injury, at, which is two points. And then you suspect, or the MRI shows some signal in the posterior ligamentous complex, then that patient gets another two points. So they're at a total of six points. You're going to operate on those patients to decompress and stabilize. And, and that's how the TLIC score works. Um, but moving on from that, uh, there's several treatment options you can do for these. Uh, one is called a kyphoplasty. What, what is a kyphoplasty? Yeah, so this is when you use like a balloon impactor uh, to restore vertebral height before a cement augmentation procedure. And I actually saw my first one of these the other day. Uh, it's kind of cool, you know, find the pedicle and you inflate the balloon. You know, there are different, a lot of different ways or techniques to do it. Sometimes you do it the two different C-arm techniques, one kind of get an AP and lateral so you can take x-rays and see um, and see what's happening and see how that vertebral height is being restored, which you can see is actually pretty cool. Um, but that's what a kyphoplasty is, use of a balloon impactor to restore vertebral height before a cement augmentation procedure. Now, what is a vertebroplasty? A vertebroplasty is something that initially was really common and popular, but it has a relatively high complication rate, but we'll still talk about it. Um, it's basically uh, 
it's similar to a kyphoplasty, but you don't first use the balloon to restore vertebral height. You just inject cement under high pressure into the vertebral body and similar to pressurizing a femoral canal or uh, using cement in other areas. When you highly pressurize cement, either fat or cement particles itself will tend to embolize and go to the lungs. So that's why it's kind of fallen out of favor, but there's still some patients that uh, with metastatic disease or very osteoporotic vertebral fractures who have continued pain that will still get a vertebroplasty. But I think a, a kyphoplasty is a little bit more common because you actually create a space with the balloon prior to cement augmentation, but uh, vertebroplasty is still done in, in some areas. So still good to know. And then uh, let's say um, you have a lumbar fracture uh, that meets, uh, it, let's say it's a T-lex of five. So you're going to operate on them. What are uh, some, what, what's a procedure that's typically performed for something like that? Yeah. So one of the things we perform like a posterior decompression via a laminectomy. So, you know, you go and you make your incision and you remove the lamina, which is again, part of that posterior bony complex. And ideally that, that um, release pressure off of the spinal cord and gives it some more room for this. Uh, well, I guess at this at this level is the roots, not a, not the spinal cord. Um, so it gives more pressure to the roots and fecal sac. And so a posterior decompression with a, via a laminectomy with fixation a level above and below the injury. So that's just kind of one of the typical procedures. You could possibly also. Um, use an anterior approach for decompression if the patient has neurological deficits and uh, fragment retropulsin. So just know that, you know, posterior decompression with laminectomy infusions above and below the injury, as well as possibly an anterior approach for decompression. If there is a significant retropulsion, you know there's some of the procedures uh, that may be used to treat these lumbar fractures. Um, that, just like you said, has a T-Lick score of five or more, for example. Now, um, what, what are, um, oh, well, we just, we just kind of talk, talked about this. This is actually yeah. the, the T-Lick here, uh, which we just touched on. We just touched on that, you know, the accesses of, you know, we look at the injury morphology when we talk about the T-Lick score, we look at their neurological status and their posterior longitudinal complex, because this shows, you know, this is kind of significant in how to manage these thoracolumbar injuries. Uh, this is one of the things that we talked about way, I think way back when, when we were doing like our first, uh, our first lectures, maybe in a trauma series. Oh, but, maybe um, we did, yeah. But what, what's the difference between neurogenic shock and spinal shock? Uh, they may sound the same, but they are not. So spinal shock is a metabolic derangement after spinal cord injury, but you are unable to assess if the uh, spinal cord injury is a complete or incomplete uh, classification after uh, spinal shock has ended. That typically ends about 48 hours after presentation with somebody who has spinal cord injury. And the way you 
are able to test that is the return of the bulbocavernosis reflex is what is going to uh, signal that the patient is no longer in spinal shock. And once again, that sort of test, it requires a rectal exam and uh, kind of tugging on the Foley uh, to get contraction of the uh, anal sphincter to signal to you that you have left spinal shock and you can assess if their spinal cord injury is complete or incomplete. And uh, yeah, go back to the trauma section uh, where we go over um, kind of essentially what uh, complete versus incomplete sort of spinal cord injury is. And then uh, neurogenic shock is an injury typically in, in the thoracic or lower uh, cervical uh, spine. And the reason why it's not in the lumbar spine is because the lumbar spine is composed mostly of nerve roots and not actual spinal cord. And the neurogenic shock is basically you get a loss of your sympathetic. So the patient's going to be bradycardic, but they're also going to be hypotensive. And for those of you out there that have forgotten step three, uh, <laughs> the normal uh, response to uh, a hypotensive patient is tachycardia. And uh, these patients will have uh, bradycardia usually in like the 40s or 50s, but they'll also have a blood pressure of 70 over 35. And, and that is not typical for a classic hemorrhagic shock. Uh, those patients are in neurogenic shock and you should be highly suspicious of a spinal cord injury because of that. And so uh, for those of you that are in high crime areas with a lot of uh, gunshot wounds, uh, kind of our last little bit of the trauma section uh, that they like to test on is um, what are the operative indications to uh, intervene on a patient who's had a gunshot wound to the spine? Yeah, we get these all of the time <laughs> in New Orleans. <laughs> We get gunshots every single day. Um, but anyways, the surgical indications to operate for a gunshot wound to the spine is when they have an abdominal organ injury. Uh, I think some of the stuff is kind of remains somewhat controversial uh, regarding the management of gunshot wounds to the spine that, I, that I've read. So I just included that, you know, I think most people agree that the abdominal organ injury is a, is a surgical indication. Um, but, you know, there are um, some out there who, state that even if there's a spinal uh, a gunshot fragment in the spinal canal if you're not having any spinal or neurological deficits you leave it alone uh, but you know this is if this is something that you're interested in I, I would suggest you to go and do some research and read on it and read some of the different articles and learn more about gunshot wounds to the spine I'm sure there are whole book chapters written about this and maybe even possibly books written about it so it is uh, there's a lot to uh, there's a lot to find out about. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember if there are uh, some out there that even if it goes through a hollow organ uh, and it's lodged in like the vertebral body, if you have to go and wash all of those out or if they just do a course of uh, antibiotics for a week, I can't remember the exact data on that. But yeah, typically if it goes through a visceral organ, you're seeding the spinal column with bad bacteria. And you may want to consider taking those patients in for a washout. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree. And, uh, and, you know, we try to sometimes do these washouts to prevent infections and, and that's a, a great transition to our next, uh, our next section on infections in the spine. We just have a couple of questions, a couple of things to, to highlight uh, when we're talking about infections in the spine. And, and so let's kind of just touch base and say like, you know, we have a, a pre-op patient, you know, they're going to come in for some elective spine procedure. I don't know, an elective uh, fusion or ACDF or, um, microdisectomy and uh, and they're getting their pre-op nasal swabs and test positive for methicillin resistant staph aureus in the nasal areas what is a typical course of treatment after a positive mrsa nasal swab test preoperatively uh yeah they actually they do this in the joints field too i did a little bit of research on this in medical school um you're going to give mupirocin ointment plus a Hibiclens body wash for five days with preoperative IV vancomycin. And uh, basically what that is doing is you're assuming that if they have MRSA in their nose, then they're probably picking their nose when they're sitting at home watching TV and getting it all over their body. So they need to wash their whole body. So during their pre-op visit, you're doing that swab and then you're having the patient take all of this stuff home with them and they have to do this for five to seven days before their procedure. And then one quick thing with, uh, IV vancomycin is it's not like ANCEF where you can just kind of slug it in the, uh, the IV right before you inflate a tourniquet or right before you take the patient to surgery, it has to infuse over, uh, 60 minutes. And so, vancomycin is typically given longer than 60 minutes prior to your incision. And so we just had a patient where the anesthesiologist recommended we get vancomycin, but the patient was already asleep on the operating table. And uh, we had to kind of stop them from doing that because it, it needs a longer time to infuse. And so if you're going to give pre-op vancomycin, make sure that they are giving it in the pre-op area, uh, a, greater than an hour before you make that incision anyways, because it takes a long time to infuse. And so let's say you, you have a patient you operated on 10 days ago and you get a phone call from, from them and they're at their general practitioner's office and their wound looks a little red and they don't feel so well. What sort of uh, uh, labs are you going to get on these patients? Yeah, so you know if they're coming in with with wound problems, and you know you're con- you're concerned for a post-op infection, the first thing you do is you just take a a deep breath and and don't panic. <laughs> Next thing you do is um, is the labs that you want to think of getting. You know the same typical labs that we talked about. I think in our basic science infections um, infections podcast, but you want to get an ESR, you want to get a CRP and a CBC. Uh, one thing to note is that, especially if this is not too far from the initial surgery, that the ESR and CRP may both be elevated from the initial surgery, uh, especially the ESR. So you know, it's still good to get these because you can trend them. So if you are treating them, you can see if the treatment is working by trending the ESR and the CRP. Now, if they come in and they're saying they're having chills, they have a productive cough, um, they're having pleuritic chest pain, they've had fevers. So, and you, you know, you're concerned of a systemic infection, 
you may consider getting blood cultures, a couple sets of blood cultures um, as well. So ESR, CRP, CBC, blood cultures if you suspect a systemic infection. Now, in what situations can a post-operative infection in the spine be treated non-operatively? Uh, those are the same ones that you're going to kind of treat non-operatively for other types of post-op infection. So just some superficial erythema, uh, the patient doesn't have any sy systemic symptoms of a, uh, acute infection, um, and you can't express anything from the incision, then you can probably give that patient a seven to 10 day course of antibiotics and have them come back the next week for a repeat wound check and uh, all of that. But yeah, the key is to follow them closely. Don't, don't have them just take the antibiotics and then follow up in six weeks. You got to see them the next week and make sure that everything is moving in the right direction. But say you're now concerned enough and you recommend that you take the patient back for surgery because of a post-op infection. What, what are some of the key things that uh, are similar in spine surgery compared to others, but maybe some other things that are a little bit different in spine surgery? Yeah, you know, some of the similar things, again, you do a surgical uh, incision, drainage, uh, or irrigation and debridement, and you get cultures from the surgery, you know, you treat these uh, with IV antibiotics, um, because you kind of, depending on how post-op it is, but if you can, you kind of want to retain the hardware, um, you know, if you can, you know, if it's a fusion, you try to get at least get the fusion to take, and before you take any of this hardware out, many times. Uh, other things to note is you try to take out the bone graft. So if you did bone graft and you did a, a, a some type of a fusion, leaving those little pieces of bone graft in the spine can serve as a nidus for infection. So you want to get all that bone graft out, which sucks because, I don't know, it could have been a lot of autogenous bone graft or BMP, whatever you use. Uh, but all, all that all that needs to come out. You need to really do a good um, surgical IND. You want to get cultures from surgery, not the superficial wound cultures. Uh, you want to get deep cultures and you want to treat them with some IV antibiotics. So, um, you know, one, in, in hematogenous spine infections, uh, what is the typical route of the pathological organism or how does it even get to the spine from being in the blood? You know, if they have, I don't know, a TB infection or staph, strep, or one of those weird other, um, other uh, microorganisms? Uh, just like it sounds, hematogenous is going to sound like it comes from the blood. Um, the end plates of vertebral bodies are very vascular, but uh, blood tends to slow down in those very vascular end plates because they that's really responsible for a lot of the nutrient diffusion to the avascular disc space. The problem, or the good part about that is that they, the blood moves slow, so they can exchange a lot of metabolites in slow moving blood. But the downside to it is when there's a bacteria in there, it gives the bacteria a better chance to move from the blood into this avascular disc space. And when you're in an avascular space, well, you, uh, can get around detection from our innate immune system and start to replicate. And then it gets into the vertebral bodies through this avascular disc space. So that's the typical route for a hematogenous infection. And uh, let's say you, you suspect a patient that has 
a discitis or uh, an avascular disc space infection, um, what is the optical imaging choice for the diagnostic uh, uh, or diagnosing these uh, infections? Yeah, so, you know, I feel like if you had to take a wild guess, um, those listening, you could probably guess and know, know where it is. But again, you want to get an MRI or magnetic resonance image. Um, also, you know, another thing that you can get to diagnose discitis is a technetium 99 bone scan, uh, which are also very sensitive tests for diagnosing discitis. Um, uh, and one of the things that you may also see on x-rays uh, if you want to evaluate the x-rays, you may see some disc space narrowing that may be seen on plain x-rays. But one of the things to know about x-rays is that sometimes the uh, radiographic findings can lag behind the symptoms for weeks. So that's why we're saying the optimal choice of imaging when you're trying to diagnose infection uh, or discitis would be an MRI scan. But again, Technician 99 is also another scan that you can use, but MRI. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. We are slowly trucking down and finishing up on spine. We just have a couple more episodes left on spine and then we'll be on to the next topic. So we hope that you're enjoying this. We hope that you're getting some value out of us talking and rambling about spines and infections and things of that sort. So please go ahead and hit the subscribe button and we will see you next week.